staying sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. It's just not about the wall either. They need the technology and the manpower to respond to the wall. Sure. But you also need interior enforcement. You need ICE officers. Because if you're, if you're lucky enough to get by the Border Patrol, there needs to be an enforcement in the interior of the United States that's going to look for you and remove you once they find you. But you. She says that after six, at first she wasn't sure. This was Kavanaugh when you first came to her last week. And then you write, after six days of carefully assessing her memories and consulting with her attorney, she did become confident that it was him. How do you begin to back up an accusation of something that took place 40 years ago? That's impossible. Why create a problem for yourself by firing? Right now, Rosenstein's on the defensive. You're on the offensive. People are actually, for the first time, looking a little bit maybe sympathetic. I think yesterday was the best day for uh, President Trump. I think this Rosenstein revelation certainly plays into the hands of the Giuliani strategy. And now, Stacey Washington. (laughs) Welcome. Welcome to the program. Stacey Washington, host of Stacey on the Right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Yeah, if I'm looking a little excited, welcome to the program. You can check out later on, head over to, to if, you're, if you're listening via our traditional media source, uh, Terrestrial Radio, you're not catching this, but you can go to Instagram, Stacy on the Right on Instagram. I'm holding up my award from this weekend's Gun Rights Policy Conference. I went to speak on a panel about media uh, and, and, you know, the Second Amendment, and Unbeknownst to me, at the luncheon just after that, about an hour and a half after I spoke, I heard my name called and went up to the stage and was the recipient of the 2018 Journalist of the Year Award, has my name on there, from the Second Amendment Foundation in defense of the right to keep and bear arms. And I can't tell you how excited I am. I never win anything. I never, the, the awards just aren't my thing. People don't usually give them to me. And here it is. And it's heavy. It's beautiful. And it's mine. <laughs> I'm so excited about it. I have to say, you know, for if you're new to the show, then you may or may not know that I used to write for the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. And if you've been around for a while, you you know exactly what happened there. They asked me to write for them. And then when I wrote something that was probably the best column I've ever written in my life, and also the one of the truest columns I've ever written, they're all true, but this one was just so true, about how ISIS and NRA members have nothing in common NRA members are the most law. So gun owners, not NRA members, but gun owners are the most law abiding segment of society, even more law abiding, meaning they have less arrests and prosecutions than the police. And, you know, the police are some of the most law abiding people we have in our our country. And so it's it's an amazing thing to see um, the article that was written and then my response to it and to see the the it just it lit St. Louis and the the, uh, journalism world on fire. And I went on from there to write so many pieces for so many other organizations and the award is just I guess a recognition of that and I was just it was just such an honor to get to be there and speak period but to get an award on top of that was so humbling and the other people who got awards Carl Kyle Kashev the young man who is a survivor of the Parkland mass shooting he received an award for his uh heroism um He's he's a pariah at his school and he experiences so much hatred, yet he continues to plow forward supporting the Second Amendment and standing by his convictions. And so he was there. He was the lunchtime uh, keynote speaker at the, the lunch and the awards luncheon, and he also received an award. And so other people who were honored, Rhonda Ezell, 
one of the plaintiffs in the pivotal gun case. Uh, it's a gun rights case out of Chicago. The reason people in Illinois can concealed carry, Rhonda Ezel, um, she received an award as well. It was a, a rarefied atmosphere for me to be there with around a thousand individuals at the conference. And it was kind of like the family meeting because the NRA convention is so huge. And I see so many people there that I know, but it's just, a, a, it's, it's like a, it's a major event. And then SHOT Show is a, equally large and intimidating to attend. But this was my first time attending gun rights policy and also my first time getting, you know, winning, winning any kind of recognition for the work that I do. So I'm really, really excited about it. And I give God all the glory for carrying me through the rough parts of that whole thing with the Post-Dispatch and forward and onward for the other things that we've been able to kind of get done. So today on the program, we are going to be speaking with Dr. Bill Murphy, the president of Good Government Now, and Sandra McDowell, who's a candidate for Missouri State Auditor. We will also be talking about this whole Rosenstein thing. Um, I, I think it's a trap set for the president. Not that Rosenstein doesn't deserve to be fired. I, you know, I've been of the mindset all along that he's not a team guy. I could be wrong. Obviously, I don't work there. But from my observation, I, I believe he's a Republican, but I don't know that he's specifically team Trump. And on some jobs, you can have people who are on on the job working on in the team that that aren't specifically team whoever the leader is, and they can still do a fantastic job. And in other situations, like a swamp draining expedition, like the one that President Trump is on, you need everybody to be Team Trump. You can't have any never Trumpers. You can't have anybody who's on there who's maybe toying with being a never Trumper. You got to have everybody be Team Trump. And I don't see Rosenstein as he's, in my opinion, he's not. But that being said, um, he's not resigned. The media reports saying that he's resigned. Those are false. And the whole furor around it is because the, the Democrats are so desperate for Donald Trump to fire any one of the individuals who's connected with the Mueller investigation, because the Mueller investigation has found nothing. The way to revive it and to give it new life, like a electric shock paddles and bring it back to life, is for the president to fire someone who's affiliated with it. Because then they can say, oh, look, he's obstructing justice. We don't want that. We want this to be over with. We want them to file their report and get out of Dodge um, and take their stench with them. And so we have to wait and we have to wait it out. And the president seems pretty resigned and laid back about the whole thing. Anyone who says they want to find a way to get rid of you and, and you're their boss probably shouldn't be on your team. But now wouldn't be the time for anybody to get fired. Now, we'll see what happens. The president uh, has obviously lots of lawyers and people on his legal team who can give him counsel. And that's fantastic. But not not anything further than that. Um so right now, I just want to I want to hear from Alan Dershowitz. He was talking about the Rosenstein issue, and he said, don't fire him. Make him testify under oath. It's number one. What he could do very plausibly is have his lawyers go to court and make a motion to recuse Rosenstein from any involvement in any case involving the president because he has a conflict of interest. He has two conflicts of interest. First, he wrote the memo, and according to the Times report, wrote it willingly authorizing the firing of Comey. You can't both investigate an obstruction of justice and be part of the obstruction of justice. But second, he has a conflict now because the Times reports that his goal is to be vindicated. And the way he can be vindicated is by putting all the blame on President Trump. So I think a court 
would look seriously on a motion to recuse, and that wouldn't make it into a Saturday night or massacre. It would make it into pursuing a legal remedy that everybody is entitled to pursue. And that makes a great point. I think one, one of the best parts about our judicial system is there's a way. You can make a way out of no way. There's, there's some other obscure precedent or law that enables you to do whatever it is that you're trying to do. And sometimes that's to the good. Sometimes it's to the bad. It remains to be seen if it will work in the favor of President Trump. But this whole thing, to me, it warrants more questions. Instead of falling into the trap of saying, well, we're just going to fire this guy. No, don't fire. Let Bring him in. Ask him a whole lot of questions. So a couple of clarifying points. The news has been reporting all day today that uh, Rosenstein was called on the carpet. He, Rosenstein was you know, he's going to the White House. He's already said verbally he's resigning and now he's going to go tell President Trump to his face. How so? If you're on the media list, which I know these people who are reporting this false information are on the media list. If I'm on the White House media list, they are too. OK, so let's just get this out there. The media list from yesterday, the daily schedule that was issued, said that the president was in New York City. He spent the night at Trump Tower last night. And that today he would be doing events and meeting with world leaders surrounding his speech at the United Nations, which is in New York. So Rod Rosenstein is not in New York. He is down in Washington, D.C. So how would he be called on the carpet to the White House? He's seen entering the White House to meet with the president who is not in residence, nor is he even anywhere near the building. He's not in the Eisenhower office complex. He's not at the Treasury. He's not at the Department of State. He's not there. So this is a regularly scheduled meeting that he has with the chief of staff of the White House on a weekly basis because they have jobs to do, unbeknownst to the media types. The other news flash is that the White House has also issued a statement, a brief statement saying that the president has had a lengthy conversation by telephone with Rod Rosenstein and that they have scheduled an actual face-to-face -face meeting at which they can further discuss developing matters for Thursday. So it looks like not only did he not verbally resign, because what does that even mean? It looks like he'll be on the job until at least Thursday when he talks to the president. And it's probably that he's going to be on the job even further than that. Mm, yeah, it's a trap. It's a trap in the, in the Star Wars aliens voice. It's a trap. So now let's pivot over to Kavanaugh. So I, I got to say, when we've talked about this topic on the show before, the show, the social contract, the social contract, which is something that it's not like legal canon, but it, it is something that's real that, that we all participate in. And when we degrade what we're willing to accept or what we see as acceptable behavior from people in public, from people in private, et cetera, et cetera. And it all started with Bill Clinton and that whole what is the meaning of the word is is and his affair with Monica Lewinsky and the Democrats and almost half of America basically saying that's between him and Hillary. That was the beginning of the fraying of that social contract, the, the one that has to do with our politics, how we do politics. So here you have Jonah Goldberg talking about the problem with the Kavanaugh accuser and this idea that if you're a woman, meaning because none of us get to decide right before we're born or conceived whether we're going to be a man or a woman. So being a woman or a man is it, it's the some people call it the luck of the, the, the die, the roll of the dice. Um, you know, the genetic lottery, God ordained you to be a man or a woman. That's what I call it. But what, whatever it is that you might believe about how you got to be a man or a woman, the fact is you didn't pick that. 
So for the idea that women have to automatically be believed, for that to fly, it means that men have to automatically be disbelieved, which means that half of our society, 51% of America's women, all that 51% of society has a benefit that is innately given to them that is not given to the rest of society for something that is an innate characteristic that they did not themselves decide. Transgenders aside, we ain't talking about you right now. So this is a problem. Here's Jonah Goldberg nailing it to the walls. Number three. Women who come forward and say and make these accusations, they deserve to be heard. They deserve to be taken seriously. The idea and, and Senator Murray says we never doubt anybody when someone says my car was stolen. That was a really clever line and it misses the point entirely. We give the presumption of innocence to people if I say Chuck Todd stole my car. Mm -hmm. You have to prove that. And if we're going to say that women as a class are always going to believe no matter what, well, first of all, I want to see how Democrats deal with Keith Ellison. But second of all, um, uh, that means that we are throwing out over a thousand years of really important law that says we presume the innocent of the accused. Not only that, but it also imputes a weakness to women meaning women aren't held to the same evidentiary standard that men are. Women aren't able to bring an accusation and then bring documentation or supporting evidence and have it stand up under the test of the rule of law that, that so many of us um, have seen work to our benefit in the past. And when I say us, I just mean human beings. If you've ever been in court before and had to submit to the rule of law, meaning you have to submit a preponderance of evidence, not just some, not just your word against someone else's, but preponderance of evidence that provides the, the avenue by which the prosecution can find other supporting evidence that they can present to a jury that a jury would find is enough to convince them without a shadow of a doubt, a unanimous verdict in a criminal case that this person is guilty and should be dealt with according to the law. That is, it, that statement completely blows the feminism idea out of the water. Either women are to be believed because we're so weak and so frail that we can't even stand up to having our, our, our assertions questioned. Our accusations can't withstand the weight of scrutiny or it's what we have now, which is, as he said, a thousand plus years of you are presumed innocent. The person who is accusing you is given the right to present their accusation. And if it meets muster, an investigation occurs. But if you cannot do that, the person is presumed innocent, whether they are a man or a woman. That's that's the deal here. All right. When we get back, we will have Dr. Bill Murphy. Stay right there. Eighty percent of the time, an abortion-minded mother who views an ultrasound or sonogram of her baby will choose life. Here's the story of Candace. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom. Thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. There are currently pre-born centers which do not have an ultrasound machine. Would you sponsor a machine today? Dial pound 250 and say keyword baby. 
That's pound 250 and say baby. Or go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Your love can save a life. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. One of the big mistakes we can make as parents is in our desire to be friends with our children, we get too close to them and cross that imaginary line of parental authority to become their pals. Now, don't get me wrong, we need to be friends with our kids, but our children lose respect for us when we don't give them the leadership and direction that is part of our assignment and even a part of our position as parents. They forget who we are. Sadly, too many of us treat God the same way. We want a God that is like our friend. Now, he is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. He does love us, and Jesus is called our elder brother. But there's the other side of God as well. Listen to these words in Psalm 5, verses 4 and 7. For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness. No evil dwells with you. But as for me, by your abundant loving kindness, I will enter your house. At your holy temple, I will bow in reverence for you. Here David underscores what our response ought to be to our loving Heavenly Father. He does love us. He does come alongside us. But you don't bow in reverence to a friend. You bow in reverence to the Lord, the God of the ages, the one who created us, the one who sustains us and sustains the universe by the word of his power. I just want to plead with you. Don't ever forget that God is God. He's holy. He's not to be tampered with or to be diminished in any way. And here's what I want you to remember today. Please listen to this. God is our friend and the lover of our souls, but he is also holy and perfect, and he demands our worship. More information about the ministry of Crawford Loritz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Happy Monday to you. Head over to StacyOnTheRight.com and hit the subscribe button. It's great to be with you on a Monday. It's great to be with you. And right now, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Bill Murphy, president of Good Government Now. Thank you, sir, for joining us today. Happy Monday to you. Hello. Welcome to the show. Uh, thank, thank you very much. I'm really glad to be with you. So let's talk about the uh, article that you have up at the Hill. Congress should invoke sure. revised inherent contempt procedure in the DOJ subpoena standoff. Can you talk to the listeners? What, what exactly is going on here? Sure. Uh, well, of course, uh, I think a lot of your viewers are aware that there's been a controversy where uh, the House of Representatives has issued a number of subpoenas over the last 13 months or so to get information about the conduct of the FBI and the Department of Justice and other agencies of government in the Russia investigation uh, and the Hillary Clinton email investigation. And the uh, Department of Justice has not been forthcoming with those documents. So this is a a typical problem that will emerge in relations between the executive branch and, and, and Congress. And uh, the, I guess the, the bottom line is that the executive branch has really been getting the best of this, and Congress has not been effective in getting the necessary information that it needs to, to legislate or to properly oversee the government uh, on behalf of the American people. It's been frustrated. It doesn't have effective tools. And this 
proposal uh, is designed to give Congress a more effective tool. And what it does, it takes what is known as the inherent contempt enforcement power, which is a centuries-old practice employed by the, the U.S. Congress and even British Parliament and other parliaments going back to the 16th century, uh, in which Congress can conduct a trial to convict a person who defies a subpoena or otherwise interferes with the legislative process. So Congress can hold its own trial, uh, convict the individual, and then issue a punishment. Historically, Congress would arrest people. They could uh, put them in jail, either as punishment or as a coercion to make them either give documents that Congress wanted or to testify. Uh, And the Supreme Court has also said that if it wanted to, Congress could impose fines. It has never done that. So that's essentially what we did is to take that practice. There are five, at least five uh, Supreme Court cases that say this is a, a valid approach. Congress has done it, I mean, dozens of times in the past up until 1934. And what we're recommending is that Congress use a revised version of that that would make it more usable so that it could be accomplished more quickly and that it would also limit the punishment to fines rather than arrest and detention. That's not to say Congress would forfeit the the ability to impose those sanctions if it wished. We're just saying as a practical matter, uh, which I'll get to in a little while in our conversation, it would be easier and more effective if Congress limits the punishment to fines now. Okay, so what is the likelihood of this happening? Because I, I think what you're describing sounds wonderful. People being held accountable in the government. It's not something we see often. I'm ready for it. I think the American people are desperate for it. We want to see individuals who work for the government be held to the same kinds of legal standards that everyone else in this entire country is held to, except for uber rich people who are able to hire, you know, entire law firms to kind of subvert the purpose of the law to their own ends. Most Americans are subject to criminal penalties when they subvert the law. But we don't see that happening with individuals who work for the federal government. So what's the likelihood of this actually happening? Let me answer that at two levels. The the suggestion in the article was that this procedure could or should have been applied to the current DOJ subpoena standoff. So right now, there's no chance uh, of that happening before the election, and probably as a practical matter, not not in this Congress. Um, We, you know, introduced that into the debate just as something that could be considered. It's harder to say. Uh, I think that, that the chances are decent. We're working very hard here in Washington to make members of Congress aware of this. Uh, my organization has been lobbying very um, diligently to this. We've had uh, meetings with, with many members, with key uh, committees. Just last week, the or actually I should say the week before last, the Rules Committee held its first hearing on rules changes for the next Congress. And our proposal and, and another that we have uh, were submitted for consideration uh, to the Rules Committee along with 11 uh, other proposals. So uh, that gives us some, uh, some, some hope. So uh, it's, it's hard to, to predict this, but uh, I am encouraged based on the, the access and the interest uh, that, that we've had from members. Uh, in a couple of weeks, we're going to be doing a major informational session where uh, we'll be inviting all any member of Congress and their staffs who, who wish to attend 
to uh, question the expert uh, who's written this this rule. We just had one last week. We had over 100 people uh, from different committees and and, and member offices. So I'm I'm hoping that uh, this proposal will will draw very strongly as well. So uh, let's kind of, I guess one of the things that I'm I'm really interested in is going forward. So there's a natural bias against members of Congress, let's say, holding themselves accountable. We see that with the whole sexual harassment uh, issue. They had a slush fund that was set up during the Bill Clinton era after he did all of his nasty deeds. Then the members of Congress were like, "Ooh, we have people like suing us and saying they're going to go public. Let's create a way to kind of ease this pain for us. And so the others who weren't doing sexual harassment, namely the women, they didn't say anything. They just sat by and let the men set up a slush fund and then they paid people out of it. And it went on for a long time. And now that's still going on, even though it was like a bombshell and it was a national news story and people across the country were disgusted. They're still doing that. There's a natural the way that it's set up is naturally skews towards people not policing themselves. There's no way to police them other than to not reelect them. And their reelection rate is over 80 percent. So, again, I'm kind of trying to see how this actually becomes a thing. Yeah, so um, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right, and it's an, an interesting uh, point that you make. And, and I would extend that. I, I've been, uh, it's, it's been very interesting to me to see that a, a lot of people in Congress, I think, also see themselves perhaps someday going into the executive branch, and they, and they look at it through that lens as, as well. So even beyond, say, just looking at one, one universe of people within Congress, you can look at that whole kind of, you know, Washington D.C. environment of, of people who are a member to it, and I, I think that that is really there. Some people uh, have said that outright. Uh, others, you know, I think it's a it's a subtext. So, um, you're right that it's going to be a tough slog. I mean, what we're trying to do is to encourage people to take the high road and say, look, if you look at the broad historical sweep of this. The ability, the power of Congress has been declining in this regard. And you're right, whether it's overseeing itself or overseeing the executive branch. And there has been a deliberate forfeit, because I think there's been a perception uh, among members that doing this type of work is not necessarily uh, a good thing for one politically. You you make enemies, it's time consuming, it takes a lot of work. You don't really get a lot out of it from. Uh, from fundraising or strengthening your your political base necessarily, but yet it's one of the most important functions constitutionally. So, uh, and and the other thing that comes that, that really undermines the process is partisanship. So, these whenever an oversight dispute or an access to information dispute emerges, you end up having whichever side wants the information, whichever party thinks it would benefit. Mm-hmm. They're arguing for transparency and accountability and maybe more uh, sanctions to get that information out of the executive branch effectively. But as soon as the shoe is on the other foot, quite frequently, the parties change. So uh, many former members of Congress I've spoken with refer to this as tribalism. And they said that, look, we have made a big mistake by putting partisan interests above the good of the country and the Constitution. A reasonable balance of power between Congress and the executive branch is vital. Congress is the instrument the people use to control their government. If Congress is not effective in 
overseeing the executive branch, the people are therefore no longer in control of it. So um, there's a lot, you know, how part, how charged the environment is on top of the concerns you, you mentioned. So it's, it's, um, it's, it's difficult. And, you know, I, I have to, I, I hate to say it, but it's probably true that this is more likely to be put in by uh, if a, um, a party uh, other than that controlling the White House is in charge. So uh, it's, it's hard to predict what would happen, but that's been the typical pattern uh, over the last at least a decade and a half, that the, uh, the, if, if, the, if the president's party is controlling Congress, oversight is less aggressive. But if it's the opposition party, they'll be a lot more assertive. So, but, but I think that uh, um, many people on both sides of the aisle are interested in trying to fix this, and Congress is looking for solutions. It's starting these hearings relatively early. So, uh, you know, I'm hoping, I just want to get in there and make the best argument that we can for the American people and, and hope we'll, 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 we'll be able to get somewhere. Well, I think the idea is is so honorable and it's so right, and I think if... I know how I feel about it. I know I'm, I, I kind of tend to take my anecdotal evidence a little bit. Kind of, I'm a little kind of serious about it, Dr. Murphy, <laughs> because no, that's great. I mean, I just, I, I, the reason I am is because I tend to get a lot of email and a lot of direct messages and I talk to a lot of people because of what I do. And so when I feel an undercurrent of something going on, I kind of feel like, oh, that's that I have my finger on the pulse. And the, the another strong indicator for me is that I was one of the last people to realize that Donald Trump was going to win, but everyone around me had been saying that he was going to. So it's not that I didn't think he could win. I definitely didn't believe the graphics that said, you know, he's no chance of winning, but I had people that I, you know, I, I bounced stuff off of all the time and they told me early on, if he becomes a nominee, he wins bank on it. He became the nominee and they were like, it's Trump all the way. He's going to win. And they said, and no, no chance at all. And so now looking back, I think they're probably a better barometer than even I gave them credit for because I didn't say, oh, yeah. that's impossible, but I definitely didn't believe them the way that they believed what they were saying. And I feel like what you're talking about here in this article, it's so needed. It's, it's like pouring some water on a plant that's, you know, maybe two weeks out from being completely, you, you can't water it anymore. It's already dead. You pour the water on that plant and it not only soaks that up, you have to cap, keep dumping the water on. And this is one of those things where if you open the spigot, and give some accountability and make people start owning up to their responsibilities. $170-some-thousand-dollars a year is a lot of money. It's way more than the median for an, a family of four, you know, working here in this country. And it, so people who are earning that kind of money should be held even more accountable than, say, you know, some mechanic who's making 55000 a year and has a wife and two kids. It's, uh, it's accountability that, that Americans are craving from elected officials and people who work in Washington, D.C., for government. And if we could just get some, I think it would just change the dynamics. It would bring some normalcy back to Washington, D.C. And we need it. We, we need it. I, yeah, I think you're right. I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, and I'd also say, I, I think there's a lot that you and your viewers can do. Uh, for me, you know, I've observed a lot of people think this oversight kind of stuff is kind of an inside game here in Washington. The sensational cases, people hear about it. But really, one thing that I hope to do going forward is to enlist the American people to start communicating about this 
to their members of Congress, especially those who are in leadership roles, who have discretion to issue subpoenas or to conduct uh, assertive oversight. All too often, that really hasn't happened. You know, we'll call to say when we need, you know, uh, some assistance with a government program or something like that. But members really don't hear that necessarily that much good, informed uh, feedback from their constituents about what they, you know, what they want to see happen. And what we're trying to do is give people a roadmap of what are realistic options that you can ask your member to do. Because when you watch TV and you see what's going on there, you hear things, and sometimes it looks like things are happening, but they might not be effective. And this is a very specialized kind of arcane area of congressional history and, and constitutional law and everything. And, you know, we, we just don't have time to get into that stuff in our every, everyday lives. But I think people can learn it pretty quickly uh, and, and act on it. So I, I just ask your audience to, you know, to keep hope. And uh, it's hard to get results overnight. But uh, if, if we all stick together and keep uh, rowing in the same direction, I, I think we can get there. Well, I think this goes a long way to informing people on what's available. And you're right. We, we, can, we have to be vigilant about requiring people that we send to Washington, D.C. to want to police themselves and to, have, to submit to oversight because it validates what they're doing. And, you know, any person Absolutely. who's worked in, yeah, in the private sector, we, we know how that works. In the private sector where there's accountability, there's, uh, there's certainly not as much waste and you see not just profitability, but you see success for businesses that have that. And um, integrity, it's, it's not something we're looking for because it's just pie in the sky and rainbows and unicorns. It's because integrity is a hallmark of future success. So we want to we want to bring Washington, D.C. back to that if we have to do it dragging, kicking, screaming. You know, it's a knockdown, drag down fight, but it's worth it. Thank you so much. Dr. Bill Murphy, president of Good Government Now. Thanks for your time today, sir. Thank you. Appreciate All right. It. Thank you. Um, so we, we he's it's such a good piece. I'm having trouble on my laptop loading the article on the hill dot com, but I will still post it at Stacy on the Right Show on Facebook. You can find it there and um, read it. And maybe maybe the first step is to just, you know, just read the article and share it with someone. And I don't mean just the social media stuff. I mean, sometimes what we do at our house, which I think is really it's it's a, fr- a friend of mine says she just spreads newspapers out every morning. And to see if she can spur a conversation around her teenagers around the breakfast table or, or they'll she'll leave an article for them to read. And then and so we do something similar at our house where I, I find an article, anyone in the family who finds an article that's interesting, you print one copy out and you put it on the kitchen table and then we all read it and we discuss it. Maybe that's where it starts, just discussing accountability in the home and then maybe share the article with a friend via email and maybe see if a few friends sit down at lunch and start thinking about who can we call congressman, senator, something like that to get them to, you know, adopt this attitude? It's unconscionable that we allow this to go on with our tax dollars. We'll be back with more right after this. Stay there. One of the first steps to becoming a Christian is recognizing our sinful nature. What makes this so difficult is that we have selective vision when it comes to our own issues. It's easy for me to see your faults, but when it comes to seeing my own, then my eyesight automatically gets bad. 
once you're far away. To measure new birth in Christ is by opened eyes and a clear vision. Sometimes we can pass between having sight and having no sight because we have fallen asleep to the needs around us, or our perspective on those things that are eternal is distorted. Whatever the case, there is nothing more dangerous than having blurred vision and still thinking that it's clear. Don't measure your vision by your own standards. It will be warped and distorted every time, but rather measure it by God's standards. God desires that our eyesight remains clear. So how is your eyesight today? With the heart for the Urban Family, I'm today's Urban Woman, Tony Johnson. Connect with us at UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Family is an institution set forth by God. One man and one woman for life, with the outflow being children produced by that union. It's obvious to all that there is an attack on the family in our country, and especially on fathers. Whether it's the cycle of sin that persists in our families or the pressure from our government to exclude men from being intimately involved, the strategic battle is on for the souls of men. Join us in the battle to strengthen fatherhood. UrbanFamilyTalk.com Y'all have encouraged us to go out, stand for the Word of God, stand politically, It's truly a blessing to hear how God is using Urban Family Talk. Just want to say I love everything that Urban Family does. Will you take a moment to share your story? Call 877-327-5647. That's 877-327-5647. Thanks. Donald Trump's America. High-level meetings at the 73rd United Nations General Assembly are getting underway. Ambassador Nikki Haley says President Trump will kick off the global call to action on the world drug problem. The focus is going to be on reducing the use of illicit drugs, on cutting the supply off, um, expanding treatment. But more than that, international cooperation and how we deal with each other in reference to illicit drugs. Tuesday, the president will address the General Assembly, and on Wednesday, he'll preside over the Security Council meeting. The topic of nuclear proliferation will be discussed and is expected to cover Iran, Syria, and North Korea. So we will have that conversation on non-proliferation and what we can do as an international community to get that um, to move forward. There are also bilateral meetings confirmed with leaders of South Korea, Egypt, France, Japan, and the U.K. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is also slated to host a Security Council meeting on North Korea. In New York City, Tanya J. Powers, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. As you've seen what's happened at the FBI, they're all gone. They're all gone. They're all gone. But there's a lingering stench, and we're going to get rid of that too. <laughs> Woohoo! Let's talk about getting rid of the lingering stench. Woohoo! Let's do it. Who doesn't love things after they're fresh and clean? You know how it is. You're dreading doing it. You're thinking, oh, we need to do a deep cleaning. And then when you're finished and the smell of freshly mopped floors, they've been mopped with bleach and there's that sweet scent that comes up afterwards and all the bathrooms are clean and everything is just so. Everything's been dusted. Even the dog has been shampooed and blown dry. Everything's right. Oh, it feels so good. We need that in Washington, D.C. No joke. We need it. We're going to take some calls. I know earlier, right before the guest, we had a caller and we weren't able to take you because we had our guest ready. But if you'd like to join the program, 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. 
love to chat with you. Um, I, I think we have a little bit of info about this whole idea. Now, I know I've said it here on the show. I've said it online. I've said it everywhere. This is a coordinated strategy. It's just like what they did to Herman Cain. They're just doing the same thing over again. It's the classic Democratic playbook. I just tweeted out also that in in my opinion, they're actually accusing Brett Kavanaugh of all the stuff that Democrat men have done. Anthony Weiner, Teddy Kennedy, Bill Clinton, Harvey Weinstein. Remember the things that we know that they did? That's what they're accusing Brett Kavanaugh of doing. And this man, and on top of what he's going through, his wife is getting the worst kind of hate emails Uh, text messages, you know, all the stuff, all the communications coming into her letters mailed to their house. Your husband should kill himself, you know, just the the worst kind of stuff. And is the media reporting on that? Should Brett Kavanaugh's wife be given the benefit of the doubt? Remember when Hillary Clinton, when we would talk about how she was complicit in what her husband did, everyone would say, no, she's a victim too. She deserves our sympathy. We, We shouldn't judge her on what her husband did. Where's the sympathy for Amy Kavanaugh? Oh, that's right. She's a Republican woman, so she doesn't get any sympathy. She's not even really a woman, and she hates herself. That's what they think about Amy Kavanaugh. So don't forget to pray over your meals. When you pray over your food, please pray for the Kavanaugh family and for this entire process and the judicious resolution of it. And and when I say judicious, that the right outcome would occur that God would make himself known in this situation. Uh, we we got to pray for that when we pray over our food. So you've got this woman, Ricky Seideman, talking strategy way back in July. She said a strategy would appear that will definitely impact the course of this nomination. Well, now we see that happening. Let's go to the phones. Bob in Tennessee, thank you so much for calling the show today. Good afternoon. Um, you know, I listen to what you said today, and I agree with everything you say and, uh, and as, as to the need and, uh, and how we go about it. But uh, what I worry about is there is a progressive uh, movement in this country that it's been going on for five decades, six, seven decades maybe, and it's well entrenched, and it's obviously well entrenched in our government, in our executive branch. I mean, these people, we I call them traitors, but these people that are being exposed now are progressives, every, each and every one of them. And uh, I just worry that we're going to be able to clean out. I mean, uh, I mean Trump's going to do what he can, and he probably will get re- reelected in another four years. He's, or he's probably going to need that. But I just worry that uh, we're, we're at the point now where we're dealing with traitors. You're right. I can't disagree with you. I mean, when we talk about what they're doing to Judge Kavanaugh, no evidence, no proof, just ripping him down because they can, because they don't want to see the end of abortion, which there's no guarantee that happens under Judge Kavanaugh. There's no guarantee. But yeah, you're right, Bob. Thank, thank you. I, I agree with you that we don't, we play fair, they don't. They're in the mud. We're, we're standing around, you know, keeping ourselves clean and neat and trying to argue uh, using words. Jeremy in Arkansas. Thank you so much for calling the show today, Jeremy. Hey, welcome to the program. Okay. (laughs) Let's go to Daniel in Indiana. Hey, thanks for calling the show today, Daniel. Welcome to the program. 
Hi. Welcome to the program. Yeah, hey, congratulations on your award. I normally don't do that because I try to uh, help people stay humble, right? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Um, You bet. So your your, uh, guest that was on, I think Dr. Murphy, didn't hear everything, but I I appreciate what they're doing. But unfortunately, Washington is, you know, is an island right now. And it's got the idea that, uh, additional consequences or additional actions would somehow change things. You can't change a person's conscience or heart regardless of what laws you put in place. They already have censure in place. They already have, you could hold someone in contempt and actually hold them in prison. In, I think it's the mid-1800s where there's a law on the books where if you hold someone in contempt of Congress, you can you could hold them in jail like we should have done with Eric Holder oh, until yep. they produce evidence. That's right. So it's not a matter of we need additional, uh, uh, you know, action or, or additional uh, policies on the books or laws on the books. We have to have people that are willing to take action. And we don't have that because I think I think they get to a place, Daniel, where if if I take action against you, then you know enough dirt on me, you're going to take action against me. And no one wants to start the free for all. So everyone is just kind of saying, well. You know, people are just going to get away with some stuff. Like it's just going to happen, well, and that's well, wrong. Well, if I may, let me let me. If, if I may, this is what my father told me when I was young. He said, "If I ever did anything to break the law and impose myself on another human being, regardless of what it was, he would be the first person to turn me in." That taught me a valuable lesson, and this is what the lesson is: that you have to go and be in a congressman. If you if your friendly Congress neighbor congressman is doing something and it's unlawful, then you have you it, I, the duty to turn that individual in. Period. Oh man, Daniel, you're telling the truth. I remember telling our son that when he was younger, and he was talking about something something had happened at school, and um, I said, "What do you think is going to happen when he gets home?" And he said, "Ah, oh, I don't think he's going to get in trouble because." He gets in trouble a lot, and his parents don't seem to, like, he, he doesn't come home and talk about how, he doesn't come to school and talk about how he got in trouble at home. And I said, well, you need to know, if you did something like that, and I found out about it, I'd turn you in myself. And he looked at me, and he looked at his dad, and his dad was like, yep, that's how it works around here. You're never getting away with anything like that. And he said, I wouldn't do that. I said, yeah, but you need to know that if you did, you would get in trouble when you got home. And it is something that parents have to tell kids because we are always telling our kids how we'll defend them and how we love them and how we'll do anything for them. But we also have to tell them, look, if you, if you do something like you break the law, we are required to hold you accountable. And so it doesn't mean we won't support you and we won't help, but you've got to know that we're not going to cover things up for you. We don't have enough people who've heard that from their parents to begin with. And we definitely don't have enough people who know that for, uh, as a matter of course, as what they're doing at their workplace. That much is evident by what we're seeing in Congress right now. Um, just, it's just crazy. So I want to do a little bit on this social contract. We've talked about it before, and it's not like y- you don't know what it is. But I'm going over it because we all often have, like I'll have someone message me after the show and say, yeah, you mentioned this, but you didn't really go into it. And so it's never a bad thing for us to kind of go back into it a little bit and kind of define it. And, it, and it's a moral and political philosophy. The social contract is a theory or model that originated during the age of enlightenment and usually concerns the legitimacy of the authority of the state over the individual. And the reason I say that the social contract is being destroyed and clawed at and torn and ripped 
and really it will cease to exist is because when the state is found to have done wrong and no one who operates as an agent of the state is held accountable, it tears at the ability of the state to exert authority over individuals who are not a part of the state. What does that look like? Well, what it looks like is what we saw with selective prosecutions of individuals when Hillary Clinton goes free, when way back in the day, Teddy Kennedy went free, even though he was there when a girl died and he left her there, he went free, went on to be a member of Congress. He just rose up and had all kinds of power. Teddy Kennedy, not only responsible for the death of Mary Kopechny, but also responsible for changing our immigration system to the complete free for all crazy pants circus it is now. Look at the result of not holding Teddy Kennedy accountable back when he was a teenager, back when he was a young man, if he had been held accountable for that back in those days, having a conviction of any kind would have precluded him from ever running for political office. Not today. Now, if you've got some kind of criminal background, it's like, woohoo, that makes you hardcore. You got cred. If you have some kind of background where you've done something spurious or you have a sketchy background, that makes you cool nowadays. But back then it would have prevented him from ever being in the Senate without him in the Senate. We would not be having thousands of people, 2,000 people in one day, cross a certain area of the border over the weekend. 2,000 apprehensions in one spot. Thanks, Teddy Kennedy. Yes. So, so you, you, there are repercussions. When we allow people to get away with doing wrong, they go on to do wrong at an even greater level than the original wrong that they did. Now, true enough, some people get off with a smack on the wrist and they really, they see the light, they change their, their ways. But there was no smacking of the wrist or the pinky finger or even the shoulder in Teddy Kennedy's case. And look what happened. And the same thing is going on now. Some of the same bad actors we've seen historically a few decades ago, a decade ago, five years ago, they're still bad actors right now. The ones who are held accountable slink off into that good night and you hope they stay out there, but sometimes they rear their heads again. Look at Al Franken. He's trying to resurrect his career. They just don't know when to go away. But they haven't been taught that because they're not being held accountable. So social contract arguments typically posit that individuals have consented either explicitly or tacitly to surrender some of their freedoms and submit to the authority of the ruler or the decision of a majority in exchange for protection of their remaining rights. Now, here in our country, we actually have a constitution that was created to kind of reorient that statement of what the social contract is. And the reason that they, the founders did that is because they knew that it wouldn't be right to say you have these rights, but in order for the state to protect you, you have to give these up. So they created the constitution in such a way, that's why it's so unique and so different from other constitutions and other documents that found nations, so that the rights come from God. They acknowledge that. They don't create the rights coming from God. They acknowledge that the rights come from God and that the state exists to protect them. But in our tacit agreement with the United States government as citizens that these are our elected representatives, there has to be some form of accountability. And when you see what's happening with half of Washington, D.C. saying that any accusation leveled against Brett Kavanaugh has to stand and be investigated even when the accusations are spurious and out, like outlandish and have no basis in fact in pursuit of a political aim, which is derailing his nomination because they don't want to see gains they've made at the Supreme Court reversed, that is a tearing of the social contract. 
we have an obligation as difficult as it might be. And, and I liken it to a story we're going to get to about a girl getting removed from Catholic middle school for a hairstyle. And the headline tells us that she was removed from school. It was because of her hairstyle and it puts the onus on the Catholic school that there may be some racism. But the fact is when we submit to, let's say a private Catholic school, we agree to abide by the rules that they lay out for say dress and things like that. And then the Catholic school has two options when girls or boys flout the rules on what color socks, how long the skirt is, what kind of hairdo they can either let it go telling every other student that it's okay to do the same thing, or they can crack down on that student and apply the rules as they're laid out in the handbook to ensure that other students don't see that student getting away with something and are encouraged to break the rules themselves. Because if you don't enforce the rule on how long a skirt is, then how can you enforce the rule on tardies? And if you don't enforce the rule on tardies, how can you enforce the rules on detention? And on and on it goes. So rather than tear the contract that they have created in the student handbook and the contract that the parents signed when they submitted their child for admission to the school, the school chose to um, abide by their own rules. And the rule is that all boys and girls will wear their natural hair. This story is an 11-year-old middle schooler removed from her Catholic private school on Monday by her parents after administrators reportedly cited her hair extensions and style as a dress code violation. So what they're saying is not only must the hair be the natural color, it can't be Kool-Aid dyed, it can't be purple, it also cannot be fake hair in your hair. It has to be your own natural hair. Now, they don't say how it has to be styled, just that it has to be natural, and that for boys, it must be above the ear and the collar. So they, again, the headline says, girl gets removed from Catholic middle school for hairstyle. This decision is going to affect black children more than white children. But the fact is, Christ the King Parish School told all of the students over the summer of the change to the dress code. And then they warned her on the first day and gave her seven days to remedy the hairstyle. And when she showed back up with it again, they said she had to go home and change her hair. They didn't expel her. Her parents came to the school, turned in all of her stuff and removed her from the school and disenrolled her. Because the parents don't want to submit to authority. But if the school had caved to them, they would be saying to all of the other students, none of these rules mean anything. That's why we have a free-for-all in Washington, because in Washington, D.C., many people have been allowed to break the rules, and now none of the rules mean anything. Farewell from the heartland, and God bless. If you're leaving us, if you're going to be with us, we have more Stacey on the Right up next.